0: Welcome to Lingthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics. I'm Lauren Gawne. And I'm Gretchen McCulloch. And
1: today, we're getting enthusiastic about the linguistics of emotions. But first, thank you to everyone who recommended us for our anniversary episode.
0: We've enjoyed sharing six years of Lingthusiasm with you, and it's always nice to see you share it with other people who need a little more linguistics in their lives.
1: Our most recent bonus episode was about using pseudo oldie timey English for fun and vibes. Hither
0: thee to patreon.com slash lingthusiasm to listen to all our bonus episodes and help keep the show ad-free. Lauren, I
1: have a sort of philosophical question. Mm -hmm. Do you think emotions are things like numbers, like things that sort of exist at some level out in the world? Or things that are more like food, where – what constitutes food is really culturally specific?
0: – I'm gonna answer your philosophical question with some linguistic data. <laughs>
1: – <laughs> Amazing!
0: – There is a really great paper that has looked at how different cultures carve up the emotion space in terms of the words that they use for different emotions.
1: – That sounds like a really interesting way of answering that question.
0: – So This was a project from Joshua Conrad Jackson and a whole team who looked at how Different languages group together different emotions into a single word, a process that they call colexification.
1: So, if we take a non-emotional, more concrete example of this to start, mm-hmm. for example, a word like pueblo in Spanish could be translated into English with either "people" or "village." So, this suggests that these two concepts may be more closely linked in Spanish, where pueblo can mean both of these things, versus in English where you have two words and treat them as more distinct concepts.
0: – Yeah, or Japanese has shima for community or island. So Again, two things that we have as separate words in English are uh, put together in the same word in another language.
1: – And The inverse can also be the case. Like There are things that English puts together as one word that another language might split.
0: – Oh, my gosh. In terms of emotions, the one that I think feeds a lot of the English romance novel tradition is the fact that the word love can mean so many different types of love, which causes all kinds of confusion – in romance novels, maybe daily life.
1: <laughs> uh, so, you have like romantic love, familial love, mm-hmm. things like – so, in Spanish, you have querer, which is more like love you have for your friends or family, and amar, which is more like I'm in love with someone. And English doesn't really distinguish between these. Indeed. And I think ancient Greek distinguishes between like agape and filia and various other types of love. Again, English isn't distinguishing between these at a lexical level –– which isn't to say that English speakers aren't aware at some level that there are multiple kinds of love, just like speakers of other languages can be aware that there are different kinds of other emotions even when there's one word for them.
0: – It's just what emotions tend to be closely associated with each other because they share a word as a label. So In Persian, to move beyond love, Persian has a single word that encompasses the concepts of both grief and regret, mm. whereas if you turn to a language like Dargwa – grief is more closely linked with what we would translate as the concept of anxiety and you can see how grief might relate to both regret or anxiety but these languages have grouped those together in different ways
1: and that's a really interesting thing about this study that they're drawing these maps at the level of a language family showing that certain language families have certain tendencies in terms of which concepts they are associating with each other so they've got a map of austronesian languages which are spoken in sort of the south pacific and southeast asia and they've got fear and surprised as linked together on their emotional map.
0: Whereas for the languages of Nak Dagestani group, which is kind of in the area of the Caucasus, which runs down from Russia through to Turkey, they have fear linked with anxiety and grief.
1: Right, which is a sort of different level of maybe positivity when it comes to what you're associating fear with, whether it's grief and anxiety or whether it's surprise, maybe you have a bit of a different cultural association around fear.
0: One of the things I really appreciate about these maps is that you tend to find that languages will have very similar maps of emotions in this way to other languages that they are related to historically, but also other languages that are just in the geographic area. And it makes me feel really positive about like the possibility of understanding your neighbor because there oh. are these these tendencies that happen within particular regions.
1: Oh that's really charming. Yeah, you know, mm. even if you don't necessarily speak languages that come from a common ancestor, that people seem to converge on emotion words when they're in contact with people who speak something that's in their area.
0: But the authors are very clear to point out that even though we see these tendencies, there's still so much variation between even related languages in how we carve up the emotion space and that each language does things from its own particular perspective.
1: And like we saw with love in English, just because a language uses the same word for you know two concepts that are distinguishable doesn't necessarily mean that speakers aren't distinguishing between them in other ways. Indeed. And ideally, it seems like it would be really cool if we could do this from a historical perspective as well, because if we're finding languages that are historically related or geographically related have similar emotion words, then it seems like looking through history would be a fun way of looking at that.
0: You would be correct in thinking that is a fun thing to do. But one of the biggest challenges that we have is that historically people weren't really focused on using labels to talk about emotions or to interrogate emotions in written records, which is unfortunately all we have left until we figure out time travel.
1: Definitely something I do with a time machine. So you get historic texts with something like a character, you know, weeping or wailing or tearing their hair or wailing and gnashing of teeth mm-hmm. but you're less likely to get something like felt surprise or felt angry or the sort of detailed kind of psychoanalytic parsing of emotion
0: yeah if we look at you know historical records a lot of written records were just these people did these things at this time and then if it is something about you know a myth or a story of people it is very much about the performance of actions and those actions might be associated with emotions but not a lot of talking about the emotions or the internal states themselves. It's interesting to think of how
1: that changes as literary traditions change. Mm-hmm. You know, you have going from this character was wailing and crying and tearing their hair out to maybe like a Shakespearean character giving a soliloquy to characters in novels or things that have sort of stream of consciousness style where it's actually trying to replicate what's going on in terms of someone's emotional state. That's a fairly recent development in the history of literature.
0: – And unfortunately, it means those historical perspectives are still very open questions.
1: – Again, something to put in the linguistics time machine box.
0: – It does make you realise just how culturally mediated our experience of emotions are and how we might label them and we might talk about them. And That's something that kids have to learn as they are growing up in the languages and the environments that they are being raised in.
1: There's this really fun paper about how kids learn emotion words and develop their emotional expressions. Oh, yeah. And I think the thing that's the most fun about this is that it puts into academic words what is probably familiar territory Mm -hmm. for a lot of people if you've met a few kids. So here's a few quotes from this paper. It says, By the time language begins towards the end of the first year, emotional expression is already well-established, and children do not need to learn the names of the
0: emotions in order to tell other people what they are feeling. So, as a translation, just because kids don't know the word for sad doesn't mean that they can't be very, very sad at you by (laughs) screaming in your face. Yeah, I think that's basically what it's saying. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me.
1: (laughs) But they do need to learn the language to tell other people what their feelings are about. Language does not replace emotional expression. Rather, children learn language for expressing and articulating the objects and circumstances of their emotional experiences, while they continue to express emotion with displays of positive and negative affective
0: tone. So kids can laugh and cry.
1: And throw screaming tantrums on the floor,
0: yeah. And throw absolute meltdowns. But they have to learn to talk about these things as well, which is why so many children's books – spend so much time talking about the emotions and the feelings of the characters because it's a really great space to practice doing that in.
1: – Yeah. There's so many interesting spaces for kind of figuring out what particular emotions are. I think one of the twos that's also used for adults is an emotion wheel. – Okay. So you have this sort of round circle that has on all of the different sort of spokes around the wheel in often various fun colors, um, different names of emotions, and they try to categorize them by sort of major emotions or major emotional categories and to like minor, or more refined bits of different emotions. Oh, I've definitely seen one of these emotion wheels for sure, and I think you know therapists use them sometimes, or teachers or educators to try to sort of help scaffold people into talking about emotions. Hmm.
0: But the thing that fascinates me as a linguist is that there are many emotion wheels and they're not all the same. Because you would expect that there are some like really prototypical emotion categories that we can break down into more complex or nuanced emotions.
1: Right, but like which categories different emotion wheels think of as sort of prime categories or primitive categories that everything else is a refinement of seems to vary depending on the emotion wheel. So I saw one that has happy and sad and angry as sort of your basic emotions, mm-hmm. and then another one that has things like peaceful and powerful and joyful.
0: Oh wow! As your
1: basic emotions,
0: <laughs> they're very different. I feel like those people are trying to aspire to some kind of like abstract synthesis of different emotion types.
1: Right. So it's kind of like, are you starting with the sort of like kid emotions that maybe you learn really early? Or are you starting with a sort of abstract synthesis? And, you know, a lot of them end up in fairly similar places. Like both of these wheels have proud, but one of them puts proud under powerful and the other one proud under happy. I mean, you could also think of proud in some context as a negative emotion. So putting it under a particular overarching category is sort of making a theoretical statement.
0: The thing I find interesting about these emotion wheels is that they often try very hard to have kind of half the wheel be positive emotions and half the wheel be negative emotions and i was thinking about this and there is one study i've tracked down that's looked at english and spanish in terms of you know just how many positive and negative emotion words there are and they find for both languages that there are kind of negative skews in terms of the number of words that we have and the number of words we use to talk about negative emotions which makes sense because like if things are going fine it's fine and if things aren't going <laughs> yeah. fine you need a lot more words to kind of explain that
1: <laughs> i think there's a tolstoy quote about how every happy family is the same and every unhappy family is different in various different ways
0: or maybe it's just that they have more words to explain their unhappiness
1: <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you need words to talk about exactly the precise degrees to which you are unhappy hmm. and also you know like with the pride thing I don't know if all emotions can be strictly characterized between being positive or negative or being good or bad like our negative emotions are still there to tell us something and an emotion like schadenfreude which is you know pleasure in someone else's mm. misfortune
0: is that a positive emotion or a negative emotion like emotions can also be complex and I think that's one of the important things to understand about emotions is that it's not just kids that have to learn labels for emotions coming to understand them and coming to find words to express them is really a a bit of a lifespan project. I think about how as I'm getting older, I'm coming to understand really nuanced and complex emotions, like one that I can only describe as like happy crying, Mm. which is, you know, a thing that as I get older, I find myself doing more. I'm I'm like, I'm very confused because this is not an emotion I learned in a kid's book or I learned early on or I have a go-to label for, but is definitely part of my like, Life as I find myself in more situations where I'm like happy but weirdly crying about it,
1: <laughs> I feel like as a kid, I would sometimes see adults doing happy crying and being like, "What's going on here and now I'm like, mm-hmm. Oh I-, I know what this is, and same things for emotions like nostalgia, yeah, like the depths of nostalgia that I can arrive at continue to grow as I have more things to be nostalgic about
0: oh, indeed, that one is going to be a real lifespan project, isn't it. <laughs> And I think it's also good to point out that there
1: are different routes and paths uh, and paces to the process of figuring out emotions and how to label them. Mm. I have recently learned the word alexithymia, which is a condition where you have difficulty connecting with and labeling your emotions. And I think it can be validating to know that there are words for even the very process of finding it difficult to put words to your emotions.  –
0: Alexithymia is a new word for me, but I feel like it's something that could help people make a lot of sense of the way they experience the world and process emotions. –
1: There's also some interesting research on bilingual people and their experience of emotion terms. –
0: I guess we talked earlier about how different languages carve up the emotion space, and so having access to emotion vocabularies in different languages that do different things might help with different perspectives on that. –
1: and Another thing that seems to really affect people is the sort of order and context in which they learned different emotional words in different languages. Mm. So It often seems to happen that when people learned a language young or with family, they have stronger emotional associations with that language's emotion words. Like I think with swear words, where if you've been exposed to that swear word in its context a lot, you have a stronger emotional reaction to it. And This can be either helpful – in the context where if you're trying to be extra affectionate with someone – like say you're having kids and you want to talk about particularly affectionate words, you want to do that in a language that feels very intimate and affectionate for you – but then also sometimes it can be helpful for people to use that second or third language and have more emotional distance from a concept and make it easier to talk about without getting overwhelmed by emotions.
0: – Yeah, there are absolutely advantages in some contexts to feeling a little bit less of an emotional punch when you're using these big emotion words or having big conversations about Emotions and feelings. I can see how it's both a a useful thing sometimes and a bit of a like the distance is unhelpful sometimes.
1: Yeah, there's one quote from somebody who says, "I have a preference for French. When my children was born, I wanted to use English just so they would be accustomed to it from an early age, but I just couldn't. It sounded untrue." So that's the sort of affectionate side.
0: And then the flip side is a Russian speaker who was reflecting on the fact that saying "I love you" in English is somewhat easier than when they were trying to say "I love you" in Russian. And I'm just like, "Oof." As someone for whom English is the most easy-to-access emotion language for me, the idea that English is an easy language to say that in does not work in my model of emotions at all. So, Which language you have more emotional access to, I guess, really, really depends on your upbringing.
1: – Yeah, and I think that's something that is difficult when it comes to trying to teach computers about how to understand emotions.
0: Mm, – Yes, given that they, as far as we can tell so far, uh, have access to no actual emotions, regardless of which language they start with.
1: Yeah, so you sort of give them a whole bunch of data, give them a whole bunch of emotion words, but then if they're trying to understand something that requires a bit more context, like sarcasm or being hyper negative for emphasis, they sort of fell apart.
0: Yeah, so this weird thing we do with language as humans is play with it. and Part of playing with it sometimes is we talked about some things are ambiguously positive or negative depending on context, but we can actually use highly negative language to be positive because we're trying to get people's attention. So, For example, I could say something like, that puppy is disgustingly cute. I hate it. And I know
1: not just from the context of puppy and cute, but also from the way you're saying it, uh, your tone of voice, your context that you're actually very positive about this puppy. It's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> I can't handle it. And this gets to another facet of talking about emotion, which is how the emotions come out from our tone of voice, not just from the words we label them from.
0: Yeah, so it's not just what we say, it's how we say it. So,
1: there are some acoustic studies
0: mm-hmm. about the effect
1: of smiling on various physical parts of the sound signal.
0: Oh, okay, because I feel like there's always this advice to like smile to sound upbeat, and I just thought that was someone trying to be annoying. But you're saying there are actually observable features that happen if we smile while we're talking.
1: Well, why don't we try something? So If I say the same sentence twice, and I'll try to say it as similar as possible, but one time I'm smiling and the other time I'm not, and you can see if you can guess which one I'm smiling on.
0: Excellent. Very handy. This is a podcast and <laughs> we can't see what you're doing with your mouth. Exactly.
1: Okay. Number one, this is an example sentence. Number two, this is an example sentence.
0: Oh my gosh. You were smiling on the second one.
1: I was.
0: There was almost nothing else that was different. Like It was exactly the same intonation. I was you really trying to, good, so hard. You were a very good experimental Sentence producer. Thank you. But there was there was something different about that second sentence.
1: Yeah, and that is that smiling seems to increase the pitch a little bit for all speakers, and then for some speakers, it also makes things a little bit louder, a little bit more extremes uh, between the highest and lowest pitch, and that they seem to be heard as smiling because smiling does change the shape of your mouth, and that it changes the sounds as it comes out of it.
0: So I guess when people say you should smile to sound like you're more enthusiastic, I should actually take that advice. It's pretty good advice. It checks out.
1: <laughs> I guess so. Do you want to hear what some other acoustic correlates of emotions are? Sure, let's start with
0: anger to go for something very different.
1: Right. So first of all there are two kinds of anger. Okay. You have sort of cold anger and hot anger. So icy
0: rage and spicy rage.
1: <laughs> oh, I think so. Okay. So cold anger, so that's sort of like sort of very stern anger, is produced with a lower pitch, higher intensity, and more energy. Okay. Whereas hot anger, which is a sort of like, you know, blowing your top off, sort of losing your temper type anger.
0: That's our spicy rage.
1: <laughs> that's our spicy rate, uh, is produced with a higher, more varied pitch. So rather than being sort of like a low grumble, is a higher, more varied pitch and even greater energy than cold anger.
0: I never really thought about the fact that anger, you know, again, thinking about what emotions we pack into a single word, I never thought about the fact we have two very different things that we label as anger, but are expressed in our Mm. tone of voice very differently.
1: Right, and so even though we're calling them both anger, we have this sense of what these two varieties are and how to produce them differently. Mm-hmm. And then fear is produced with a higher pitch, less variation in terms of up and down pitch variation, and lower energy and a faster speech rate, which sort of makes sense to me because you sort of uh,
0: fear. Yeah, and I like that you know it has the same. It's a higher pitch, like our hot anger, mm-hmm. but it has lower energy. So there are like all these different parameters that we are manipulating when we show emotion in our voices. And then sadness
1: mm-hmm. is also produced with a higher pitch, less intensity, but more energy and more pauses and longer duration. But this seems to be English specific because there's also a Japanese study where speakers, especially female speakers, use a lower pitch for sadness. So there may be also culturally specific aspects to some of these acoustic correlates of emotions.
0: So – Just like we learn different words and different associations for those words across different cultures, we also learn to express our emotions in different ways.
1: – Right, and in ways that are legible to other people in our cultures so that they recognise, yeah, this is spicy rage, or this is icy rage, or this is fear or sadness or something like that.
0: – I assume even with the cultural differences, For spoken languages, we're still all operating with the one vocal tract and signed languages, we're still all operating with the one body that's going to respond to emotions in particular ways. So I assume even though we've been mostly talking about English for those previous emotions, there are some patterns that occur across languages.
1: Yeah, there's another study that compared how people identify emotions in three languages, English, German, and Arabic, and found that speakers of the other languages were still pretty good at identifying which emotion was being expressed in a phrase in a language they didn't understand. So There are certainly some levels of cultural comparison here, for sure.
0: I feel like I can watch a film in a language I don't speak and know if someone is in a fit of spicy rage. So that That checks out for me.
1: Yeah, I think so. The study that I find both sort of very validating and very disturbing mm-hmm. about how emotional tone of voice affects people is also based on how people perceive particular tones.
0: Okay, so we've talked about how there's this tendency to produce emotional tone of voice in a particular way, but that has an effect on the people that we are speaking to or that, that hear that use of speech.
1: Right. So this study was sort of very classic psych study paradigm. You know, you come in to a lab, you have a computer screen, you have a voice telling you to press a particular button. Okay. One of two buttons. And the commands to press a particular button were said with either neutral prosody, Okay. happy prosody, Great. or angry prosody.
0: Oh, no. No, <laughs> that sounds very stressful.
1: So the angry voice tells you to press the red button and you're like, oh, No. <laughs>
0: I feel very stressed thinking about this research paradigm. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And then sometimes they would just sort of vary up whether they give you the happy voice or the angry voice or the neutral voice Mm -hmm. sort of randomly. And then sometimes they'd give you the angry voice after you'd messed up pressing the previous button. Oh, no. This is very stressful. <laughs> this is so stressful. Like You brought your participants into the lab to yell at them. And they found that, sure enough, people do have slower responses to the angry prosody, and uh-huh. even slower responses when the angry prosody was given after they had previously messed up, and they actually thought the computer
0: was kind of angry at them. People really are affected by tone of voice. Right.
1: And like on the one hand I find this study very stressful because like, yeah, you're gonna bring your participants into the lab to yell at them. I hope they like debriefed them and gave them a cookie afterwards or something.
0: <laughs> I mean, this is the thing that reassures me about university research is that it has to be cleared by a committee that look at the ethical implications of it. And doing this kind of work does require you to like make sure your participants are okay afterwards. <laughs>
1: That's really reassuring, actually.
0: But also, I feel kind of validated
1: by this study because I think you do have an emotional reaction when someone says something to you in an angry tone of voice Mm -hmm. that it's nice to know that other people are also feeling that and you can sort of measure it in this very psychologically validated sort of way. And it's not just like this feeling in the pit of your stomach or this tightness in your chest isn't just – oh, this is me and I shouldn't be having this reaction to this emotional tone of voice. It's like, no, this is like a normal human way to feel when someone is having an emotion at you. It's to feel an emotion in response and for that to affect your ability to respond to things.
0: And I guess also a good reminder that when you are in a fit of spicy rage, that you are having an effect on the people who are around you.
1: Absolutely. and That's one of the things that I find really validating about talking about emotions from a linguistic perspective. The fact that there are all these words for emotions – reminds us that we're not alone, that other people have had and labeled and shared feelings like ours before. Sometimes it's finding the right life experience or the right labels for our feelings. and Sometimes just thinking about the linguistics of emotion words reminds us that we don't have to be alone with our feelings, and we can feel more connected with other people by talking about them, whether that's in a private journal or diary, whether that's reading about other people's emotions or experiencing them through media like movies and music – or simply by thinking about the words that we use and how they connect us with other people who've also used them. For more Lingthusiasm and links to all the things mentioned in this episode, go to lingthusiasm.com. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can follow at on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can get IPA scarves, not judging your grammar, just acquiring it, baby outfits, and other Lingthusiasm merch at lingthusiasm.com slash merch. I can be found as at Gretchen A. McSee on Twitter. My blog is allthingslinguistic.com. And my book about internet language is called Because Internet.
0: I tweet and blog as Superlinguo. Have you listened to all the Lingthusiasm episodes and you wish there were more? You can get access to an extra Lingthusiasm episode to listen to every month, plus our entire archive of bonus episodes to listen to right now at patreon.com slash lingthusiasm, or follow the links from our website. Have you gotten really into linguistics and you wish you had more people to talk with about it? Patrons can also get access to our Discord chat room to talk with other linguistics fans. Plus, all our patrons help keep the show ad-free. Recent bonus topics include a chat with Liz McCullough about linguistics and psychom, a world tour of children learning languages, and playful ye olde ye English. If you can't afford to pledge, that's okay too. We also really appreciate it if you can recommend Lingthusiasm to anyone in your life who's curious about language.
1: Lingthusiasm is created and produced by Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gon. Our senior producer is Claire Gawne, our editorial producer is Sarah Doppiarela, and our production assistant is Martha Tsutsui-Billens. A music is ancient city by the triangles. Stay enthusiastic.